This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is made possible by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia believes in honoring all life as sacred, working with many projects towards a shared vision for the future, rooted in an interconnected approach to ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many transformative projects to life and for helping us to bring our show to you every week. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. And for people to start appreciating the different worlds we're walking in, the different experiences we're all having around climate change, and in some ways allow for new conversations to happen in a third space without the burden being upon an individual's shoulders. Today we are speaking with Heidi Quanta and Alicia Escott. Quanta was raised speaking three languages, simultaneously, and as a result, has long been fascinated with how words influence people's thoughts, actions, and ultimately culture. Creating new words is something she loves doing and has been doing since she first learned to communicate with other humans. Adult reprisals of that's not a word didn't stop her when she was five years old, nor does it today. Quanta was inspired to create this artwork with Escott because she was at a loss for words to describe the very real emotions and feelings she found herself experiencing as our world rapidly changes due to social, political, and environmental factors. Quanta's passion as an artist and founder of the nonprofit Creative Catalyst is finding innovative approaches to inspiring cultures to address the pressing social and environmental challenges of our time. This passion is a continuation of 17 years of designing and running a wide array of environmental and human rights initiatives. Quanta received a Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Arts in Cultural Anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley. Alicia Escott's artistic thinking focuses on grappling with what it is to live a human life amid a moment that is profoundly rare in the geologic and ecological history of the planet. She is interested in how we each are negotiating our immediate day-to-day realities and responsibilities amid an awareness of the overarching specter of climate change, mass extinction, and other anthropocenic events. She approaches these issues with an interstitial practice that encompasses writing, drawing, painting, photography, video sculpture, and social practice. Escott holds an MFA from California College of Art, where she received the Richard K. Price Scholarship in Painting and a BFA from the Art Institute of Chicago. Thank you so much for being on the show and diving into this topic that we have really yet to explore. Yeah, thank Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be here. 
For nearly the entirety of human history, language stemmed from the land. If a culture was centered around a river, then their language was also centered around that river. A language birthed by salmon, bear, sea, sky, and spruce would be vastly unfamiliar to a language born of alligator or cypress, march, and mangrove. So in the wake of globalization, the rooting of language to place has largely vanished. So I'd love to begin this conversation by asking you to speak about why language, culture, and ecology are inseparable from one another. This is Heidi. So I'm first generation. Both my parents are not from this country. I'm the first of my, all of my ancestors to be born in the United States. And so it was really interesting is that my mother used to send me back to my grandmother almost every summer. No one there spoke English. And the dialect they spoke is tragically now dead, but it's very much a river dialect. So I have this wild experience of walking in two worlds as a youth where my great-great-grandmother and grandfather's name is Lahnstein. Lahn is a river. And so they're literally named after the river where they came from and live not too far away from. A lot of the words, the diversity of words for river were so beautiful, but I didn't realize how magnificent they were until I was in the United States and found the English language lacking. So I would say that in my own small way, have seen or experienced the difference and the evidence of the stripping of the knowledge of the land is that the first prisoner of consciousness in Alcatraz was a Hopi who refused to stop speaking Hopi. So I think there's this interesting experience in the United States where I would ask people what are all these words for and no one knew because it had been violently uh, removed from the people who are the original ancestors of the United States through physical violence and then political imprisonment. That's kind of a long answer, but it's been interesting to notice. I don't know a lot of the language of the place where I was born and raised, whereas my ancestors did. Thank you, Heidi. And Alicia, do you have anything that you'd want to add? So there have been these studies, of course, I'm not a scientist, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't verify them, but linking the loss of language diversity directly to the loss of biodiversity. Um, so I think you're hitting a really important nail on the head. And I think um, when we started this project, we were really thinking about new words and experiences that people are having that we don't have the language to talk about. Within that, we always wanted to include dialogue or directly words that maybe were lost to modernity, you know, as everything's become so specialized and so homogenized, but that are actually really important for the times that we're, we're now living through as the climate's changing, as, you know, we're facing adversity in our environment. And I think also one of the things I'm personally passionate about is inviting people who still speak the language of the land where I currently live to share with me what they know. And that's been beautiful. And I think there's kind of this not realizing that there's still a lot of Native American communities in California. They still do speak their language. They still do know the names of many things. And if you honor and respect what they're doing, it's still there too. So a personal passion of mine is consciously going out and meeting with people and sitting and listening. 
I think there's still a lot that can be learned. One of the words that this woman, Kamala, who hails from Oakland, she came to us when we had our pop-up. Uh, we have three ways that we collaborate with the public to create new words. We have a evening salon in which we invite a select group of people. And then we have this literally mobile bureau that we bring to public spaces and simply ensconce ourselves in neologisms. We have a banner that says the Bureau of Linguistical Reality. And we're then sitting in our uniforms and open to anyone and everyone engaging in a conversation about the power of words. And when we were at Banffa, the Berkeley Art Museum, Kamalo came up to me and she's a healer. And she said, I want to create a word for the fact that when we strip plants of their indigenous name, we lose the wealth of knowledge that comes with that plant. And when we give it a Latin name, we're losing the knowledge of place. So I think there's still also a rich opportunity to learn from the words that still do exist. So I think we're an and-and project where it's also listening to what is there and then seeking to fill the gaps for what is not. This biodiversity crisis that you mentioned has deafened not only the songs of our plant, animal, and fungal kin, but also the songs of human linguistic diversity, which we've been mentioning, and the immense cultural and ecological implications that this loss of language carries are not to be understated. For in the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, she says that, quote, when a language dies, so much more than words are lost. Language is the dwelling place of ideas that do not exist anywhere else. It is a prism through which to see the world, end quote. And cultures living in reciprocity with the earth for millennia surely saw their natal ecosystems through shifts, through times of both scarcity and abundance. And I think about the breadth of adaptive ecological wisdom that we aren't even comprehending that's being lost right now. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the consequences of this severe bottleneck of indigenous languages in regards to our ability to respond and adapt to climate chaos. One of the interesting things as someone who's my first language was not English, is that globally English outside of Chinese, is one of the dominant languages. By only speaking and limiting yourself to English, you are missing a wealth of knowledge. Not just the actual word, but a social structure behind that word or a relationship to other sentient beings. Like So for example, when you start talking to people from other languages, you realize the spectrum of worldviews and philosophies and approaches that are just such richer and so different. So for example, when we did a salon on the immigrant experience, it was all in Tagalog. Neither Alicia and I speak Tagalog, but we just facilitate these spaces. And one of the revelations that came forward was that before the Philippines was colonized, the word she and he didn't exist. You never refer to someone as he or she. And when this revelation was brought forth in the salon, it made us realize like, wow, we have a very myopic relationship to one another, to the earth and to other sentient beings in many ways reflected in the dominant language that is now used globally. And I like to think, what if we allowed for other languages to come forward to reveal their wisdom and knowledge by the very way that their language is structured or their words exist? That to me 
always provides new perspectives that I've completely not been aware of. I unfortunately, this is Alicia, I unfortunately, English is my only language. And the architecture of it has always felt like it's not necessarily the habitat that I most that I would be most comfortable with. And, and maybe that's because I how I've become an artist and worked in the visual fields and things like that. You know, we reference this term linguistic relativity playfully, but we really and there are implications to that term that we we don't want to take on. But I think in some of our initial discussions, it was we were thinking so much about how if we don't have the words to think about things, the words to to put thoughts into kind of those vessels to hold thoughts, it's like they don't really exist for us. You know, we, we think within our language. It's not just how we express and communicate to each other. It's how we perceive our own world. So not just the individual words, you know, which this project kind of quirkily works with the structures of language, the ways of thinking of those, you know, we're, we're losing all of that, you know, as we lose language diversity. But what's also beautiful is that there's still hope because I feel that at the end of the day, we are sentient beings. And the beautiful thing about this project is when we identify gaps, it's not to say that someone somewhere on the earth doesn't have a native word for it. They've either just been murdered or it's been killed literally through violent conquest and being subdued. But what I found so beautiful about this project is that you start realizing this collective trying to find a word for something. And you'll see people go, I have this feeling. And what's so beautiful is that our feelings are still very real and our feelings still unite us. And what's been so beautiful about this project, like Solastalgia, is a neologism created by Glenn Albrecht in Australia. And it means that you have a longing for your homeland, similar to Solastalgia, but the tragic thing is you haven't actually left your homeland. It has been so radically altered due to human activity, like clear-cutting of a forest or extreme mining, that it is no longer the homeland you once grew up with, and so you long for it, and so it's celestalgia. And when we shared this neologism with people who had gathered in Paris for the climate change talks in 2015, they all immediately said, I feel this. And then they would create neologisms to express the type of solastalgia that was very specific to their homeland. And so the beautiful thing is that what is not lost, if we really listen, is a sentient connection to the earth and a sentient connection to one another. And perhaps words have been lost, but there's still some beauty in the power of creating new words to honor feelings that, and sensations that just don't go away. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I, I'm really intrigued. It's not something that I've explored before. And so it's opening these little fissures in my mind. And I'm really enjoying hearing this. And and I'll add to that. So solastalgia is a word that was one of the first words that I encountered and that I had started to make artworks in response to in the years preceding this project. And I found so many artists and thinkers when they encountered that term had such a strong response to it. And 
they interpreted it in so many different ways that weren't really what solastalgia was about. Glenn Albright was really talking about something very specific. But so many people felt such a void and such a need for that word that they kept packing all of these ideas and all these feelings and all these melancholia inside of it about their particular concerns, worries, fears about what was happening to our planet. It was just this huge revelation that there needed to be more terms to talk about what was happening. And a couple years after that, the word Anthropocene started coming to the forefront of a lot of people's thinking and minds. And that word, again, just really, you know, as an artist who's been dealing with these issues in so many different media for so many years, I realized it shifted the way that people thought about our role on the planet when that term was introduced more than any other media for for talking about those things. Having that new word really shifted something in people's brains. And so that's when uh, Heidi and I got together and we, we realized that there should be a broader lexicon for these terms that would, you know, be placeholders for the the large feelings that we're all going through and the specific small ones as well. One thing that's been sticking with me from both of you, your last response was describing this longing for a place you never left because it's now unrecognizable, whether that's altered by development or by climate change, for example, rising shorelines. Could you say that word again? I think you were... That term is called solastalgia. It was created by Glenn Albright, who's an incredible thinker and philosopher. Um, He's based in Australia. And he created that term in, I believe, 2002, but I could be incorrect on that. Mm. And then we saw so many, I saw so many artists and thinkers glob onto that term. And then Heidi was mentioning, we later on when we were at the COP21 climate talks, we made specifications of that Yeah, so what happened to us, when we were at COP21, we had our mobile field study office, which is basically a desk bureaucratic desk. Alicia and I sit behind it wearing our faux uniforms with our seal. And then we have a big banner behind us that says the Bureau of Linguistical Reality. And then we're ensconced in neologisms. So we literally use the power. I'm also a behavioral science geek. I love how people learn and change the behavior. So that's been a parallel track of mine. So we're using the best of behavioral science where we have curiosity factor We're not coming at people. We're letting them come to us so they believe it's self-driven learning. And also, we're making people do riddles. They're familiar with a bureau, but then it's attached to something unfamiliar, the linguistic reality. And the the way that all these neologisms around solastalgia came about in Paris was that people would come into our space. They would see the word solastalgia. They would go, oh, my God, I am feeling this in my homeland. And then we would invite them to personalize and localize the solastalgia experience by creating their own word in their own language. And Alicia can share a beautiful word that was created by a woman from Haiti to express her very place-based experience of solastalgia in her own language. So that term's Sanjay Kukuimam, and she grew up in a a rural area, a rural mountainous area of Haiti. And she talks about how 
lovely it would be with the sound of rain and then the cicadas would come and fireflies would come and there's not a lot of electricity where she's from. So the light of the fireflies was so profound and the sound of the cicadas was so was so also profound because it was quiet where she was, but because the weather's been changing, the insects aren't coming in the ways that they historically had as they did when she was growing up in her memories of childhood. And so it's a particular longing for that experience that she's no longer getting to experience. that the process of creating words to describe sensations of the Anthropocene in itself is powerful. Groups of people from diverse backgrounds gathering to converse and collectively acknowledge the concerning unfamiliarity of now. And I'm curious, do you foresee this work as being an empowering tool to help grow the connective tissue of our social justice and environmental movements? Absolutely. Yeah, I think what we also do is we allow people to come at the project however they feel comfortable. So that can be just coming up and having a conversation to, I'm going to provide you the definition. I don't feel comfortable writing the word. I give you the Bureau permission to share my definition and feeling and sensation with others and have them coin this neologism. And I think one of the most powerful definitions that we've received so far is from Rodney Ewing, who's actually a San Francisco-based African-American artist. And he said, look, as an African-American male in today's United States, I do not feel safe. And he's an older gentleman, so he has seen a lot. And he's saying, "As in, when I walk down the street, I don't feel safe. I'm worried about getting attacked or jumped by the cops or others for no reason at all other than I'm African-American. So when I walk down the street, this consumes me. And he said, when well-meaning white environmental activists tell me that climate change is the most pressing issue and I need to really focus on this, I have no idea how to communicate to them. Look, until my own personal safe person, when I walk down the street, is safe, I just do not have the energy, mental, physical, and other, to think about anything else. He said, I long for a word 
that would allow people to understand that I am not oblivious to the climate change challenge, but until I am respected by other human beings and am able to walk down the street, I don't have the bandwidth to think about greater climate change. And I think this word is so powerful because it shouldn't be on Rodney to explain every time someone's talking at him or talking down to him about climate change. And the hope is that if we can create this word, it would allow for the burden to be taken off of Rodney and for this word to be the focal point of understanding and for people to start appreciating the different worlds we're walking in, the different experiences we're all having around climate change. And in some ways, allow for new conversations to happen in a third space without the burden being upon an individual's shoulders, if that makes sense. And I'll add to that. This is Alicia. I can really respond to what you were saying about like creating connective tissue between people. Um, and I think that that's creating, you know, what Heidi just said about that third space. So the project does that literally by creating spaces. So when Heidi is referencing our mobile field offices, we're creating these spaces where we'll have 20 or 30 neologisms that have been created through the project up and people can engage those and then they can have conversations with us directly. And in those conversations, sometimes we make a word, but sometimes we just identify the feelings that we're going through. And then Heidi also mentioned our field studies where we bring small groups of people together around a particular theme that their different diverse work addresses and will create this space to have a conversation and to share our different specialized language to talk about that theme. And we'll often find that once somebody identifies this feeling or phenomena that they don't have the language to talk about because it's so new, that they will often have this great relief when they realize that everybody else in the room or several other people in the room totally identify with that. And it goes from taking them from feeling like they're experiencing something in isolation to realizing that this is a larger phenomenon that we are all experiencing or that many of us are experiencing. By creating the word as a vessel, the project really does create these points of connectivity um, between people and allows and legitimizes their their experiences and makes them realize they're part of a greater collective. Negotiating the feelings and experiences that we are having as the climate's changing, I have never thought about climate change as independent of social injustice or independent of all these other things. Like we just think that everything is so intimately tied together and that if you pull a string on one thing, it affects something else. And so to me, I don't think that we're ever going to solve the issues of the CO2 in, in our atmosphere if we're not also bringing people out of poverty and addressing all the issues that are intimately connected to that in terms of our human animal. I can't help but think of how even before climate change and this era of great unraveling, that English lacked the wherewithal to describe our intrinsic relationship to Earth. English is the predominant language of 
colonization and capitalism, and it can really lack animacy and a spiritual connectedness to the earth and cosmos. And it's severed us from the fabric of life and from one another, as we've been talking about. And I think the dissociation that has accompanied the domination of English has allowed us in many ways to enact and condone such pervasive destruction. But then on the flip side, English is also very flexible, and we're now gifted an opportunity to reimagine English in a regenerative way. I think of, uh, again, the Potawatomi ethnobotanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, who proposes an alternative pronoun for it, which could be ki or kin, plural, once again imbuing life into the way we speak about our non-human relatives. Or instead of regarding a body of water as a dead noun, one could transform the noun into a verb, to be a bay, which releases water from bondage and let it live, which is a quote from Robin. And then I also think about Chinua Achibe, a Nigerian novelist and poet and professor who said, describing his intent to indigenize the language, quote, let no one be fooled by the fact that we may write in English for we intend to do unheard of things with it, end quote. So I would love to hear your thoughts on how to dismantle the hegemony of the English language and reinfuse it with animacy and sacredness. The beautiful thing, when you actually study the history of the English language, and this is why I love this project so much, because we come across as whimsical and comical we have a fake bureaucracy. When we're performing, we have glasses without lens in them to reemphasize through visual cues that we're making fun. We don't need a bureaucracy to create words. Human beings have been creating words for centuries without asking for permission from anyone. The moment something was not familiar to us, even in the English language we created. So the word smog is a portmanteau of the word smoke and fog, and it was coined by a doctor who was treating these horrible lung ailments with the advent of burning of massive coal during the Industrial Revolution. People were suffering a completely new lung ailment that had never existed before. And he was sick of trying to describe it. And so at a medical conference, he said, this is smog. We are no longer dealing with fog. It's a combination of smoke and fog. And people were so elated to finally name this horrible substance. It was adopted like wildfire. So we've always been doing this. And I think we need to remind ourselves that it is already there. We just need to let it be free. Like children, completely on their own when they're learning English, will constantly create new words. And it's only due to adults saying to them, that's not a word. But what if we radically shifted our culture and encouraged children? Okay, you go forth. What is it you want to say? What's the word you want to create? Because children have also added to our lexicon. And I just want to finish this thought with, I created a word with Ash Arder. Ash is a beautiful artist from Detroit, Michigan, who works both in textiles with nettles and also sound. And her family hails from Mississippi and Alabama, and they moved to Detroit. And her father works the line. And what we did is we created a word called quia seed. And the definition of quia seed is a seed that due to social trauma stays consciously dormant, not out of oppression, but rather due to a deep intuition which senses not to seed until it finds itself in a fertile, fecund environment. 
And so I feel like people already organically want to knit the social to the environmental and dismantle these silos that only exist because we allow them to exist. That's a beautiful word. I'm really loving all of this creativity. And I come back to creativity a lot when I'm feeling stuck in the immensity of the tasks ahead of us, how we can tap into this deep well of creativity and play and bring in these ideas that have been dormant or potentially haven't felt like they were even possible to us, like creating new words to be able to describe what's happening for us individually, collectively, and so on and so forth. And it's brought up a few other thoughts for me as you've been speaking about these people from all over the world with very different experiences. I think about how the dominant language surrounding race and gender have worked to compartmentalize the fluid expansiveness of our identities. Even the confines of white and black can dishonor our complex heritages, further disconnecting us from the lineages we stem from. And I wonder about things like, what if we said European supremacy instead of white supremacy? Perhaps it would propel us to reflect a little deeper on the origins and trajectory of such supremacy. This project always invites such a rich investigation of the nuances of just our everyday experience. You take that term white supremacy and shifting it to European supremacy. But even just the fact that we say the term white supremacy as a negative idea, but it still binds the words white and supremacy together. And I feel like we just shouldn't even use that word. You know, we shouldn't say as a derogatory that, oh, they're white supremacists, because the idea of white supremacy is so just absurd. You know what I mean? And those, those words shouldn't be together. And so it's this constant investigation of language. I so hear what you're saying about how, what Heidi was saying about the the siloing in, and I don't think it's just language. I mean, this project, you know, takes it as a crack, but looking at all the systems for which we take for granted, and then by, by identifying that we're all experiencing and feeling things that we don't have the words to talk about together, it gets a way to take the everyday things, the everyday systems that we're all living within and get to examine those. And so those are the architecture of the English language that so much of the world is communicated through, or it can be looking at late capitalism as a system that we we just take for granted as the, the way that things should be done. I think also the power of this project, and perhaps it's something I've always done is that you can just refuse to use certain words. And the beautiful thing about the way that language is transmitted, at least English in the United States, is that if you're at a party and you throw a new word in, the way that we behaviorally approach language and the way we've been raised to approach language is that if someone throws a new word in a sentence with confidence, the listener the majority of the time assume that they don't know the word. And then they'll more often not ask you, oh, what does that word mean? So the beauty of this artwork is that you can spark and inspire and seed shifts 
in the simplest way. It doesn't cost money. It doesn't cost advertising. It just is that just like when you hear rap music, just start introducing new words and they're so delicious and so intoxicating that people start adopting them. That's the beauty of this project. You don't need to ask permission from anyone. You just have to decolonize your mind and grant yourself permission to express yourself in the way that you desire to express yourself and to rethink the words you've ever used and to abandon those that no longer serve you and introduce ones that do. Uh, I see this where people are empowering themselves and one another by expressing new language around identity. Maybe a lot of us in the audience have seen words like woman spelled with a YN or woman with an X or folks with an X, and then the non-binary pronouns such as they, Z, etc. And I feel like while in many circles these have become commonplace, the depth that such restrictive alienated language is entrenched into the psyche of the dominant culture still remains a hurdle for the masses. And so I'm wondering if you could speak about the power in shedding such alienating language around identity and walk us through some of the different pronouns and words being widely celebrated today. One thing I wanted to introduce, too, is that I think it's finding early adopters, right? So there are thought leaders in every community and knitting together the thought leaders of every community who concede within that community. I fully respect that we still do have, in many ways, a segregated United States. But there is a beauty in people who are like-minded, who transcend these silos and having them seated, to your point, having them seated in other communities where they may not access or ever go to. One of the salons we had, which is where we bring together people in an evening for an intimate conversation, riffing off what you were saying about gender words, was to examine what does it mean to be maternal in today's world? And again, riffing off of taboo subjects of what you were saying, it's it's taboo if you're at a dinner party. And if you say as a woman, if you say as a woman, I've decided not to have children, the common response at a dinner party or setting is like, oh, you're childless or you're less than, as if there's a certain stage in your life that you are never going to experience. And then therefore your life is unfulfilled or it's you're only realizing 80% of your life on this earth. However, when you really talk to a lot of the women who choose to do this, you'll find that some of them have such a deep, massive maternal instinct that the reason they choose not to have children is their consciousness of all sentient beings and the impacts humans are having on other sentient beings and the natural resources of the earth. But there's no word that celebrates such a vast, deeper maternal instinct. And so in this salon, we investigated new ways to show and reveal this beautiful level of being maternal. And in another salon I did, one of them, we started using, well, let's use words that have come from a maternal background, like the Italian language so honors the female mother figure. So we created the word nonna paura, which means grandmother fear, but it's based from a place of love and maternal and using a language that honors the female at a, a special level. And another word is Kinkara, and the definition is a person of any gender who plays an active maternal role in helping to raise children they have not physically birthed, yet whom they thoughtfully and lovingly help to raise. 
They are non-biological chosen family who actively contribute to a constellation of care. This nurturing involves everything from helping with the everyday tasks of raising a child to teaching to unconditional love. And it comes from the word kin, which all the way back comes from the Greek genus and Latin word meaning race and kara, which is Latin for meaning beloved. makes me think about this interview I had done with Chief Colleen, and she brought up Dr. Masaomoto and how water responded to sound. And the quote was, the result was that we always observe beautiful crystals after giving good words, playing good music, and showing, playing or offering pure prayer to water. On the other hand, we observe disfigured crystals in the opposite situation, end quote. And I think about how when we use language, we can use it in a way that is healing. And we can also use it in a way that's completely destructive, even how Alicia, you were talking about white supremacy. And we shouldn't be using those two words. And every time we say white supremacy, perhaps it digs that zeitgeist a bit deeper. It digs the cultural significance deeper in rather than I guess, using words as the change we want to see. It's really interesting to go this deep into how our engagement on so many levels impacts our culture and how we create our culture or how we engage in the perpetuation of the culture we don't want to be in and how poetry and art can be a tool And something Mm. that we have, well, I guess the dominant culture has yet to put a lot of respect behind how that can Mm. drastically shift culture, belief systems, patterns of engaging with each other, with the world, with uh, non-human creatures. And that we have tried a lot of other (laughs) tactics that aren't working. And science alone isn't shifting climate change. And what I mean by that is many people at this point have heard about climate change, have read the statistics, but the statistics alone are not shifting people quickly enough. And so I think that there's more to reaching the depth of the human than this um, purely reductionist way of explaining the world. And how we can tap into these deep wells of creativity and love and enticement 
to give the power back to the people in that way is really exciting to think about, especially in the trenches of climate change and how deep and overwhelming and just the immensity of the situation we're in, to think that there are these other solutions that are connective and exciting. I think it's something so beautiful to latch onto in this time for so many of us. So I really appreciate both of your work and your bravery and your willingness to think outside the box and actually do something about it and put yourselves out there. And I just think that in itself is such an incredible lesson for everybody listening that during this time of great chaos and destruction, we can support each other to be courageous. And also I didn't get a chance to interject was that when you, um, because I'm really fascinated by social change and so I've always looked at big social change movements All social change movements have been led, like the French Revolution was literally led by poets and playwrights. And what they were doing was writing about the world people wanted to live in. You know, and they created that catchphrase, fraternité, égalité. And it literally, I mean, it went bad with the guillotine, but it literally allowed people to visualize where they wanted to go. Or you look at the civil rights movement in the United States there were songs and some of those speeches I consider outright poetry, not where we are. It was about where do we want to go? So when you look at any social change movement globally at the forefront are lyrical poets, playwrights, storytellers, and they are all, yeah, they're giving a nod to where we're at, but they are all talking about the world we all want to live in. And I think That is literally how radical, massive change has occurred. And so that is historically what's worked. And so I feel like, you know, why mess up a good thing? That actually is how it works. I think it's interesting how we've been fed a story that that isn't the case. So in a way, we're being told to not do that because that's not serious enough or that's not effective, efficient, and so on and so forth. And so it kind of stops people from going down that path. And I even think about children and how children in a lot of the current school systems are not being nurtured to have this creative force behind them. And then how you were saying in the French Revolution and so much of these social change movements, that itself is where the real power of the heart lies, is in Mm -hmm. the artistic expression of how do we see the world moving forward? What are our dreams? How do we want to live the change? And it's just interesting to look back and go, wow, do the powers that be understand that so deeply that they're stripping that from our cultural structures so that more people don't feel safe or nurtured to step into that kind of work? I even think about how in the United States, how so much of the arts are not being funded and how that plays into it. Yeah. And what's really, really interesting. And so for a lot of the work we do, I end up being the fundraiser. So that means I have to interact directly with foundations. When you look at the majority of foundations in the United States and what they'll fund when it comes to environmental work, I have literally been told 
oh, that's too outside the box. But what they're currently funding is not working. And many of the foundation structures are literally mirroring a model of not empowering people from communities who know best how to do things in their communities. It's literally a foundation saying, we've decided how we're going to control you via how you do or don't use the money, as opposed to, I give you this money. I trust that you know the language that works best in your community. I trust that you know best how to rally your community. And someone was trying to comfort me with all these no's from environmental foundations. And they said, look, not one foundation gave money to Martin Luther King. And it's not like the civil rights movement didn't try. You know, he's like, this is not old. This is how it goes. And I was like, I know you're trying to comfort me, but you're kind of depressing me. And he's like, I just want you to know it's never worked this way. They don't get it. And so I feel like the funding that is, quote, the core funding of current major environmental groups in the United States is also flawed. It is not built on trust. It is not built on letting people in their own communities do what they know works best. And that is something that also needs to be called out because it's real. Yeah. The structure of the foundations themselves and basically the structure of the support systems of the movement are lost in the bureaucracy and the reductionist mind frame that also controls the dominant government structures. And so we're not able to break through with the support. And so the support is just going to perpetuating the same systems that aren't working. But that's the beauty of art and creativity, is that if something is so delicious, it's so inviting and people gravitate towards it. And I also feel like, literally, when people go to battle, this is what is used to inspire them to face death. You know, like if this works for you to possibly die, there's got to be something behind behind it, you know? That's an amazing point because a lot of times I think about this addiction to consumer culture and to fossil fuels and why are we not willing to sacrifice our comforts for the sake of the earth? Why are we not willing to sacrifice this, that, or the other, let alone our own selves to protect the remnants of biodiversity and other cultures and people? And then you talk about how art can inspire people to go to war, to potentially give their lives for this greater good. And it's not necessarily being used on the flip side of that, of how do we use art to push ourselves to be more engaged stewards. And also to recognize that that it's there's not a nature and then us. We're not at battle. That whole language in the environmental movement of like fighting climate change, it's using the language of battle when really it's not. It's about saving ourselves. We're not independent entities of nature we're one aspect of nature we're one species in a in a plethora like it's all it's about our own survival as much as the survival of anything else i think alicia also nailed it the fact that we use the verb fighting climate change you know as if it's this thing that's coming at us rather than it's something we created you know um i also wanted to say that an obvious phrase that's outdated, riffing off some of the other phrases we've talked about that are outdated, is that in the United States, 
even the most thoughtful parents who seek to be incredibly elevated in their footprint on the earth will still use the outdated expression to their children, go throw that away. And that's telling a child at a young age that there's this false away. Yeah, really, where is that? Yeah, there, <laughs> there is no away. Have you been to away? <laughs> and I feel, I've seen some parents go, ah, as they say the phrase, but they haven't yet empowered themselves to not say it and to say something else. I think people are now saying, I mean, I do see people now saying the words landfill, like, oh, that's going to landfill. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think this, like, there are the powers that be that, but like culture rises, you know, and then the powers that be appropriate it, you know? Oh, I love that. Go throw that away. Where is a way? And it doesn't really speak to the consequences of our actions. It buries the consequences of our actions under these words that aren't really describing what's going on. And so it allows us to very quickly move through our day and not actually think about what we're doing. And then I think, again, with the fighting climate change, it is this interesting us against them. It's us against Earth's natural systems, rather than we are a part of climate change, we have caused the current climate change, or we must save nature, or let's go to nature, or, you know, all of these things, of course, and it's so true what you said, it is separating us. And then our whole belief system is built upon this separation that language taught us. It's really interesting how deep that goes. Yeah. And when you look at other languages that are still alive and vibrant and being spoken, nature is not a separate entity. You know, they have never created it as such. And I mean, not to dismiss the concept of wild, but we are all wild. Everything is wild. The whole, there is no wild. You know, I am wild. It's all wild in the most beautiful of ways. I would love if we could uh, start to end this conversation by perhaps telling the audience how to find out more about you, how to get involved, and what you see as some of the most pertinent practices that people can start to be a part of. Our mobile field office is called the mobile field office for a reason. We do take it places. Um, so if you would like for us to take our mobile field office somewhere, we can always do that. That being said, I think we both, the Bureau of Linguistical Reality is, is at a point where we also welcome other people to, as long as they give the Bureau credit to take what we've done and talk to us and host, host their own salon style field studies, um, with our guidance, um, that can be a way, but really it's just like a constant examination of language and as language as a way to examine the world. For me, it doesn't, the fact that we're using language here is not the primary. It's just to me always, I'll use whatever medium. It could be smell, it could be an object, but to get people to think differently about their place in our time. 
Yeah, riffing off what Alicia was saying, I was saying some people will adopt a practice of meditation and some people will adopt a practice of doing a physical exercise to get back into their body. And we would like to invite listeners to get into a practice of thinking about the words you use and why, and perhaps beginning to use new words that are more in alignment with everything of who you are and to be bold and experiment. And some people have said to us, I just would feel so weird saying this word. And I said, the beautiful things you don't know until you try. And um, when we were in Paris, we were on a panel because what we also do is we do these faux academic presentations about our findings as if we were literally anthropologists discovering new worlds. And in they're the, quite funny. Yeah. And in the um, discussion that followed, one of the women we were on the panel with was phenomenal. She has both a PhD in science and a PhD in poetry. And her nemesis, who was in the audience, got up and asked a question slash not a question. And she said, there is no time to waste on poetry. Climate change is so dire. The situation is so dire. We cannot waste our time on poetry. And to respond to this woman, the woman on the panel, the poet scientist responded so beautifully. As you know, in scientific processes, one cannot draw a conclusion until one tries. And we haven't yet tried poetry. We haven't yet tried all these creative modalities. And so I think that's what the Bureau is all about. Try, see where it lands, and we're so screwed right now, you can't do anything but help, is my kind of philosophy. And also, I'll just, I'll just add to that, this moment we're in, thinking about the words we use and speaking cleanly is more important than ever. Because as you've mentioned, there are all of these great neologisms coming into the fold to help us talk you know, more cleanly about our experience in terms like woke. But also the Webster Dictionary word of the year last year was post-truth. I mean, the way that, that language is being used and abused by the powers that be and how it gets confusing to even know what we're talking about because people are talking in circles. I think this project really invites a deep sinking into to, to what is it we're saying and what are the things that we take for granted within the words that we use. And thank you for taking the time to talk yeah, to us. It was your really, questions were really beautiful. Yeah, it was wonderful to talk to someone who's so thoughtful and thinking about these things. So thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music in today's show is by Arthur Moon, and our theme music is by Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank Ayana Young, our host and founder. Writing and lead research for this episode by Madison Magalski. Outreach and research, Francesca Glassbell, Aiden McRae, and Hannah Wilton. Podcast music, Carter Lou McElroy. Digital community organizing, Suzanne Dollywall and Aaron Wise. Graphic and web design, Erica Ekram. 
and Melanie Younger with Partnerships and Media. I've been too long away from this wild open sky on the concrete trails and wide through the canyons dark and wide the sounds of people talking 